Good evening, this is Quintus Curtius, and welcome back to the Fortress of the Mind podcast. And in this podcast, we're going to talk about two separate but somewhat related topics. And the first topic will be a question that I received by email from a reader. And his question is, do I need a mentor? Is it a good idea to get a mentor? And we'll talk about that. And the second question or the second issue or topic that we'll talk about is something that ties into the first. And it's it's really an emotional description by the author Jorge Luis Borges, the Argentinian author, which some of you may have heard of. But he talks about his progressive blindness. He had a disability. He eventually went blind. But what's important about his way of viewing this disability was that he viewed it as a positive rather than negative. And I think when you hear his words, and I'll be reading them, you'll agree with me, I think, that this really is a great example of how we can see negatives as positives, and how the world really is what we make of it, and how even the most bitter disappointments or misfortunes can in many ways serve as the impetus to further growth. And This is an example that really rings true and resonates in so many ways. And you'll see that when I read the passages from uh, his essay. He wrote an essay, which was delivered as a speech. And it's a very, very good one. And we'll go into that in a little bit more detail here. But first, let's go to our first issue, which is the issue of mentorship. And this is an email that I received. I'll read it. And he says, Dear Quintus, recently a lot of people keep saying that in order to truly excel at business, dating, fitness, etc., that you absolutely must have a mentor. However, in my situation, I cannot afford to have one, and I cannot find one in the first place because I live in a very small country. Well, <laughs> it must be a very small country indeed if it's that difficult. But I'm uh, setting aside my, my smart-ass comment here. Let's let's go on here. I, I, I get... I understand what he's trying to say, but it's just um, funny how he worded that. He says, I don't doubt that mentors can help you accomplish life-term goals, but I seriously doubt that they are necessary to have them. I'm nowhere near the station that I want to be in life, but I am slowly working my way towards my goals. Do you think that it is possible to achieve above-average success in life without any mentors? Well, this is a good question. Because if we define mentor as the classical, traditional mentor that you may you see in the movies and television or read about in books where you have a, um, a kindly uh, you know, professor or expert or coach or, or trainer or teacher who actually takes a liking to you and, and, and spurs you to further growth like maybe existed in the past century, I remember one example, the, the, the French linguist who deciphered hieroglyphics. His name was Champollion. I forget what his first name was. I think it was Jean. Jean-Claude, Jean-Marie, Champollion, something like that. In any case, he was uh, had great linguistic ability at a very early age, and he was encouraged by someone that he, that he met, a scholar, who let him read his manuscripts and books and, and you know use his resources and encouraged him in further directions. And when I heard about that, you know, you say to yourself, man, that just doesn't exist anymore. I mean, every professor I ever had was basically worthless in the sense that they only cared about themselves. They didn't care about us. They cared about themselves. They cared about 
doing what was best for them. And I've talked to many people, and I think most people had the same experiences that I had. You know, they really, the, the classical model of the mentor doesn't really exist anymore. And that's kind of a shame because I think the older generation in many ways has abdicated its responsibilities. And that's something that I've said repeatedly many times. They always, the older guys always hate it when I say that because I think it strikes too close to home. But it's true. It's true. I think the, uh, the generation that's maybe 60 and above, they, uh, they, uh, in many ways, they, they dropped the ball. They let us down. They, um, they didn't do what they were supposed to do. They were supposed to be gatekeepers, and they failed miserably in ensuring that certain traditions were passed on, and they didn't do that. That's a separate subject. I don't want to get into that too much, but I've said that before on many occasions. So if we're talking about the classical, traditional type of mentor, someone who's going to cultivate you, nurture you, be there to answer questions. Unless you're very lucky, don't expect it to happen. It's not going to happen. But you know what? That's okay. That's okay. And I'll give you a couple reasons why. The first reason I kind of liken back to the movie Moneyball. Many of you may have seen that movie. There's a scene in there where the Brad Pitt character says, when he's being asked, hey, you know, how are we going to find a certain baseball player to replace this guy at shortstop or this guy in left field or this batter or this uh, infielder or outfielder or whatever? And I think Brad Pitt said something like, well, we, we can't exactly replicate him, but we can create him. We can create him. We can get one guy that's good at this area, that's good at batting uh, in these circumstances. We can get another guy that's good at base stealing. We can get another guy that's good at something else. And if we combine, figuratively, quote-unquote, combine all of those skill sets, we can, in effect, create a substitute. We can, we can almost create a collage of a person. We can create a collage. We may not be able to have the exact person, but we can create that person. And where that has relevance to what we're talking about is you can create your own mentor. You can find, you can get snippets from one person. You can get snippets from another person. You can read about certain things and draw things from books. You can get them from movies, from people, wherever. You almost have to be now a scavenger of information. You have to be enterprising. You've got to be hustling. If you're not hustling, you're sleeping. And that applies in this as in every other aspect of life, if you're not out there hustling, making things happen, you're missing the boat. You're just missing the boat. Life moves too fast nowadays, and there's just no patience that I have for dullards, sluggards, or dunces. I mean, you, you just you you can't you just can't afford to be that way. You you waste too much time. You lose too much time, and you're going to be behind the power curve. So that's my first point. You may not have the mentor that you would like, but you can create one by making a composite. The second thing you can do is you can rely on books, which is in many ways has been um, a great resource for me. You can rely on books. Now that's not good for every person because not everyone is willing to exert the discipline needed to actually read these books. And even so, even when they do read them, they often draw the wrong conclusions from them. Or they don't have the necessary uh, state of mind to really process books or understand them. And that's okay. That's all right. But it's 
It's one suggestion. And the third option is, hey, you know, you've got me. <laughs> you can rely on me. Um, you know, I do this because I love it. I mean, that's why I do this. I'm not, this is not a full-time job for me. Uh, I already have uh, a full-time job, I, but in my, uh, in my spare time, I'm a, I'm a writer. I write books. And, you know, I wouldn't do that if I wasn't sincere about it. And it takes a special type of person, I think, to really go through the effort to do that. And I think if you compare objectively my stuff to anybody else's stuff, uh, it speaks for itself. And, I'm, you know, without any false modesty, the reality is that you're going to get more and better information that way than pretty much anywhere else for the subjects that I talk about. So to answer your question, uh, yes, it is possible to achieve success, above average success in life without mentors. It's not easy. It takes a self-starter. It takes discipline. But you tell me, what, what in life these days is easy? Not very much. So like everything else in life, you've got to fight for it. And that's been a consistent theme, a consistent theme in all of my writings and many of my posts on my blog, qcurtius.com. So you've got to fight for it. You've got to try to create your own mentor. You've got to try to rely on other people. And you've got to read a lot. And you've got to live life. You've got to have life experiences. But don't give up hope. You know, there's really... Uh, a lot of truth to the idea that when you're right in your mind and when the time is right in your life, the right mentor will appear. The right person will appear when you are ready. You will know when you immediately hear him or her. And it is possible, I suppose, to have a female mentor. It's, it's rare, but I suppose it's possible. And you'll know when you hear him. You know, he will just speak to you. You know, the the philosopher Plotinus, when he first heard his mentor, Ammonius Saccas, in Alexandria, about the 2nd or 3rd century AD, he said, that's the man I've been looking for. That's the man I've been looking for. And that's really how it is. You'll know when you know. But you're not going to meet that person unless you get out there and mix with people. You've got to get out there. You've got to mix with people. You've got to inject yourself into different experiences. You've got to put yourself in different settings. You've got to do things. You're not going to meet anyone looking out your window, staring at your shoelaces, or pondering the universe in your room. You've got to get out there and you've got to live life. I'm not saying that you're 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 staying in, in your room, but I'm just saying that as an example, uh, as a as a cautionary statement. So those that's my thoughts on mentorship. And you know, maybe who knows, maybe it's always been that way. Maybe we have a skewed perspective or a skewed perception of what things were like back in the good old quote unquote good old days. Maybe mentors have always been difficult to find. Maybe it's never been easy. But I never really had one, but what I did have was, at certain points in my life, people who I gleaned useful information from. And all you need is a handful. I wouldn't really call them mentors. I would call them associates who had important things to say. And just like the collage baseball player in Moneyball, you can create him. Create your mentor. Create him as you would a collage.
and then you will know. So now let's move on to our second subject, which is, in some ways, related to the first topic, which is how to see the good in the bad. How to see the good things that come about from something bad. And I saw this, I was reading this, this, uh, this lecture just the other day, and I said, boy, this is a great example. This is really inspiring. Jorge Luis Borges was a Argentinian author. And our resources tell us he lived from 1899 to 1986. And he was a very influential and original modern writer. And in many ways, he set the tone for the postmodern literary movement. And he's associated with the, the city of Buenos Aires in, in the same way maybe that um, James Joyce is associated with maybe with Dublin uh, or um, uh, Kafka is associated with Prague. Uh, very interesting writer. And he had great willpower and also linguistic ability. He taught himself English and also some of the Scandinavian languages just because he was interested in the literatures of those countries. So the subject, what drew me to this lecture was how Borges uh, describes how his he suffered from progressive blindness. I should mention that he had a congenital problem, a progressive blindness, which was a result of an inherited eye disease, and he viewed the progressive blindness that he suffered from not as a tragedy but as an opportunity. He, he viewed it as, a, as an opportunity for further growth and further development. So what I'm going to do here, because I think hearing it in his own words is the best way to really get the inspiring nature of his words. I'm going to read them to you. And you can replay them, I think, as you desire. And I think by doing that, you'll be able to really inspire yourself and, and really be able to reflect on the point, which is that no matter how bad things get, no matter how bad things are, no matter the terrible situation that you're in or that you've suffered or are suffering, there's always something positive. Life is about perception. Life is a really, it, it, you know, you can always say that it's, it's, it's a truism. It's very, uh, it's, it's, it's a trite statement, but it really is true. Life is what you make it to a great extent. Life is what you make it. So let me read here the the um, the words of Jorge Luis Borges and then we'll close and see what we can conclude from his statements I will begin then by referring to my own modest blindness modest because it is total blindness in one eye but only partial in the other I can still make out certain colors I can still see blue and green, and yellow in particular has remained faithful to me. I remember when I was young, I used to linger in front of certain cages in the Palermo Zoo, the cages of the tigers and leopards. I lingered before the tigers gold and black. Yellow is still with me, even now. I have written a poem entitled, The Gold of the Tigers, in which I refer to this friendship. One of the colors that the blind, or at least this blind man, do not see is black. Another is red. Le rouge et le noir are the colors denied us. 
I, who was accustomed to sleeping in total darkness, was bothered for a long time at having to sleep in this world of mist, in the greenish or bluish mist, vaguely luminous, which is the world of the blind. I wanted to lie down in darkness. The world of the blind is not the night that people imagine. I should say that I am speaking for myself and for my father and my grandmother, who both died blind, blind, laughing, and brave, as I also hope to die. They inherited many things, blindness, for example, but one does not inherit courage. I know that they were brave. The blind live in a world that is inconvenient, an undefined world from which certain colors emerge. For me, yellow, blue, except that the blue may be green, and green, except that the green may be blue. White has disappeared or is confused with gray, and as for red, it has vanished completely. I hope someday, I am following a treatment, to improve and to be able to see that great color, that color which shines in poetry and which has so many beautiful names in many languages. I live in that world of colors, and if I speak of my own modest blindness, I do so first because it is not that perfect blindness which people imagine, and second, because it deals with me. My case is not especially dramatic. What is dramatic are those who suddenly lose their sight. In my case, that slow nightfall, that slow loss of sight, began when I began to see. It has continued since 1899 without dramatic moments, a slow nightfall that has lasted more than three-quarters of a century. In 1955, the pathetic moment came when I knew I had lost my sight, my reader's and writer's sight. When I think of Buenos Aires, I think of the Buenos Aires I knew as a child. The low houses, the patios, the porches, the cisterns with turtles in them, the grated windows. That Buenos Aires was all of Buenos Aires. Now only the southern section has been preserved. I felt that I had returned to the neighborhood of my elders. There were the books but I had to ask my friends the names of them. I remembered a sentence from Rudolf Steiner in his books on anthroposcopy, anthropos, <laughs> anthroposophy, which was the name he gave to his theosophy. He said that when something ends, we must think that something begins. His advice is salutary, but the execution is difficult, for we only know that we have lost not what we will gain. We have a very precise image, an image at times shameless, of what we have lost, but we are ignorant of what may follow or what may replace it. I made a decision. I said to myself, since I have lost the beloved world of appearances, I must create something else. At the time, I was a professor of English at the university. What could I do to teach that almost infinite literature, that literature which exceeds the life of man and even generations of men. What could I do in four Argentine months of national holidays and strikes? I did what I could to teach the love of that literature 
and I refrained as much as possible from dates and names. I thought, I have lost the visible world, but now I am going to recover another, the world of my distant ancestors, those tribes of men who rode across the stormy northern seas from Germany, Denmark, and the Low Countries, who conquered England, and after whom we name England, since Angeland, land of the Angles, had previously been called the land of the Britons, who were Celts. Thus I began my study of Anglo-Saxon, which blindness brought me. And now I have a memory full of poetry that is elegiac, epic, Anglo-Saxon. I had replaced the visible world with the oral world of that Anglo-Saxon language. Later I moved on to the richer world of Scandinavian literature. I went on to the Eddas and the Sagas. I wrote ancient Germanic literature and many poems based on those themes. But most of all, I enjoyed it. I am now preparing a book on Scandinavian literature. I did not allow blindness to intimidate me. And besides, my editor made made me an excellent offer. He told me that if I produced 30 poems a year, he would publish a book. 30 poems means discipline, especially when one must dictate every line but at the time, at the same time, it allows for sufficient freedom as it is impossible that in one year there will not be 30 occasions for poetry. Blindness has not been for me a total misfortune. It should not be seen in a pathetic way. It should be seen as a way of life, one of the styles of living. And being blind has, has its advantages, I owe to the darkness some gifts, the gift of Anglo-Saxon, my limited knowledge of Icelandic, the joy of so many lines of poetry, of so many poems, and of having written another book entitled, with a certain falsehood, with a certain arrogance, in praise of darkness. The Boston aristocrat Prescott was helped in his blindness by his wife, An accident when he was a student at Harvard had caused him to lose one eye and left him almost blind in the other. He decided that his life would be dedicated to literature. He studied and learned the literatures of England, France, Italy, and Spain. Imperial Spain offered him a world which was agreeable to his own rigid rejection of a democratic age. From an erudite, he became a writer, and he dictated to his wife, who read to him, the histories of the conquest of Mexico and Peru, of the reign of the Catholic kings and of Philip II. It was a happy labor, almost impeccable, which took more than twenty years. For me, to live without hate is easy, for I have never felt hate. To live without love, I think, is impossible, happily impossible for each of us, But the first part, I want to live with myself, I want to enjoy the good that I owe to heaven. If we accept that in the good of heaven there can also be darkness, then who lives more with themselves? Who can explore themselves more? Who can know more of themselves? According to the Socratic phrase, who can know himself more than the blind man? A writer lives 
The task of being a poet is not completed at a fixed schedule. No one is a poet from 8 to 12 and from 2 to 6. Whoever is a poet is one always and and is continuously assaulted by poetry. I suppose a painter feels that colors and shapes are besieging him, or a musician feels that the strange world of sounds, the strangest world of art, is always seeking him out, that there are melodies and dissonances looking for him. For the task of an artist, blindness is not a total misfortune. And so that will conclude the passages I'm reading from Jorge Luis Borges' thoughts on going blind and how it helped him, how it inspired him and served as a stepping stone to further achievement. And that is the point that I'd like to get across in this podcast. Even the most terrible things, even the most terrible of events, blindness, deafness, loss of a limb, loss of a loved one, loss of whatever, these things can always be turned into positives in some way if we only can keep things in perspective, retain a positive attitude, and not allow ourselves to be tormented or laid low by grief. That's the key. And some of the most recent posts that I've done on my blog, qcurtius.com, relate to this. I did a post a couple days ago um, on the art of consolation. And if you haven't read that, you should go and read that now. And it takes a very deep and a very philosophical perspective on how to control grief. If you let it in the door, Plutarch says, if you allow it to gain a toehold in your consciousness, it's a guest that will never leave. It's a guest that will never leave. And it isn't easy to practice this. I understand that. Of course it isn't easy. You know, no one ever said it would be easy. But the alternative is that, or you lose your soul. And if that is the choice, then there really is no choice. We have only to go forward. One step in front of the other, one foot in front of the other. From now until we are on our deathbeds, and that is life. That will conclude our podcast here at Fortress of the Mind. I'm Quintus Curtius, and this was brought to you courtesy of Fortress of the Mind Productions. I'm Quintus Curtius. Good night.